to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash the pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. We're getting near the end of Pride Month now, but we still have some great guests left for you. And this, this has been a really good uh, Pride Month this year, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Yeah. Last year, it was just us two chatting shit um, all month. But this year, we are joined by other people to chat shit with us. Uh, this week, we are very happy to introduce the first ever filmmaker we've had as a guest on this podcast. He is a master of modern exploitation and cult films, films that bring back everything we loved about horror cult and exploitation of the 70s and 80s. Whew, that was a mouthful. He's the director of A Werewolf in England, Death Ranch, The Barge People, and English Haunted, and Escape from Cannibal Farm, to name a few. It's Charlie Steeds. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we that introduction. Been Sorry? Thanks for that introduction. Uh, you know, no problem. No problem. I, I like to uh, overprepare, but it's, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. You know, you you bring films with neon lighting, synth, soundtracks, practical effects. It's just everything, you know, we love about horror. Everything we celebrate about horror on the regular on this podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's refreshing to see a filmmaker doing that now and... I've been able to watch them, especially as an English filmmaker as yes. well. Yes, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and what a career you've had. I mean, you've you know you've covered flesh eating mutants, werewolves, vampires, cannibals, ghosts. <laughs> it, <laughs> is is there much left? Are you going to start revisiting some of those? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. I'm sort of working my way through all the cult subgenres, but yes. no, there's there's still plenty left. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. And I say women in prison. A uh, women, yeah. <laughs> I, I love a women in prison film. Yeah, I'd love to do a women in prison film. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, yes, yeah, so I, that's that's our introduction for you. I mean, you Tell us in your own words, what is it you do and what inspired you to uh, become the filmmaker you are now? Um, well, like you said, you know, uh, my production company, Dark Temple Motion Pictures, which is it is essentially just me at the head of it and then, you know, a very small team and a sort of recurring group of actors um, who I like to sort of write for and use again and again. Um, we are basically just in the UK making sort of uh, cult movie inspired low budget B movies. Um, and that's basically that's basically the idea. And I'm just lucky enough that people are still hiring me more and more to make them. And so, yeah, I get to go through werewolves, vampires, ghosts, um, and just like, you know, have a blast making the sort of movies I, I've always wanted to make, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we, we're obviously here today to talk about um, a vampire film that's very heavy on its, you know, LGBT uh, plus themes. I mean, you know, your vampire film, Vampire Virus, I mean, that, that's probably more gayer than Lost Boys. And it is great to see. It is absolutely great to see because, I mean, you know, I've always said, if you've you know you've got the power to put LGBT films with uh, films LGBT themes within your films, then you know and and if you do it, it's really admirable. It's great. Well, yeah, naturally, uh, LGBT themes are always something that you know interests me, and I want to see more of on screen. Um, I want to be able to get them in uh, into my stories and characters, and I, I just think naturally even if I didn't intend it, they'll just seep in anyway. Yeah, um, and luckily at this sort of low budget, independent level, you know, unlike the mainstream, you are able to get away with a lot more. You can slip in much more sort of gay content. Um, so, you know, that was absolutely the case of Vampire Virus. <laughs> I was approached to make that by a company who wanted a vampire movie. Um, 
and they sort of dictated the story to me. And at the centre of it was this sort of um, lesbian love affair between a, a stranger who turns out to be a vampire and our lead character. And so I thought, well, I can't really make a vampire movie with that at the centre of it without filling it with, you know, sort of an LGBT storyline and, and other gay characters. So got to make a movie where, you know, the four main characters are all uh, LGBT characters, which yeah. is, was really fun. It, it is so great to see. I mean, it, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's definitely more regular within indie cinema because uh, mm. you've got your big budget films where if there's one gay character, you know, there's just a massive deal made about it. And, you know, yes. obviously... It, we need representation wherever we can get it. Um, but, you know, the fact that you just, you know, you just in, it put all that stuff in your films and just, you know, there's no apologies for it. It's, it's really gay. Here it is. Deal with it. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's what I love about it, you know. That's, it's really great. I think it is watching a film like The Lost Boys where it's very queer-coded yeah. and they're not able to put it all out there, mm. whereas you were able to put it all out there, yeah. you know, how many years later? Great at maths. Uh, but yeah, 30, 33 years later, you know, it, it yeah. shows progress. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why Chris is better with words than I am on the podcast. <laughs> um, short, so... short and sweet. Get to the point. Thank you. <laughs> I like talking. What can I say? Um, so, yeah. So today we are here to discuss The Lost Boys, released in 1987, directed by Joel Schumacher, uh, a previous star of the podcast when we discussed Batman and Robin. <laughs> that masterpiece um are you a batman and robin fan i've i've actually not seen it in years but as a kid i really liked batman and robin <laughs> yeah that was us that was us and, and then, then you sit down and analyze it for two hours you're like oh okay that's what everyone's talking about <laughs> it always have a special place in my heart yeah yeah it's got a lot of rewatch value um it, of course he also directed batman forever falling down phone booth the client flatliners you know the list goes on uh, and we recently found out he's a uh, fashion icon as well. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. We watched. Uh, well, we started watching the Ewan McGregor miniseries on Holston, mm-hmm. um, and um, Joel. There was a character in it called Joel Schumacher, played by uh, Kieran Culkin. Kieran Culkin, yeah. And we we're like, that's not the Joel Schumacher, is it? And it turns out it was. And yeah. he was, you know, a designer. Um, that's how he sort of got his foot in the door. Um, did he do costumes for films? Um, he he may have done. He didn't do them for this film. No, but he, you know, was there making dresses and that show, and we're like, oh wow. Whoever did do costume designs for this film, I really hope they got a pay rise because I mean, there's something else. <laughs> they they're the most eighty. I mean, this is the most eighties film. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, made on a budget of eight point five million dollars, and it made thirty two point million at the box office. So decent success, would you say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. If it made money, then yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, how does it work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let us know. We have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I'd be happy with thirty two million. So, well, back in those days, I mean, I don't really know how it exactly worked, but I mean, to me, that doesn't sound like it made a huge amount of money. But I mean. Films, the way films were back then is so different. And I and I mean, I think everyone misses the time when film, what did you say the budget was? 8.5 million? 8.5, yeah. yeah. I think we all miss the time when 
the cinemas were releasing films of a budget of that sort of level. <laughs> yes. It's not too big, but it's not too small. You know, obviously now there's the giant gap of you've got your big blockbusters and then your tiny independent stuff. You know, all these little movies like uh, Lost Boys, they're sort of they're totally lost now. You don't get that sort of a thing. Um, it'd be cool to have that back, but... Absolutely. I think a horror film, 1987... If it had done really well, you would have had a sequel by the end of the decade, yeah, yeah. essentially. Um, we had to wait how long for a <laughs> sequel. Yeah. I haven't watched. <laughs> no, I probably won't. <laughs> have you not seen it? No, I've not bothered with them. <laughs> you haven't missed so much. No. <laughs> the third one's all right. Um, Lost Boys the First. Uh, Lost Boys the Tribe... Not sure what they were going for, if I'm honest. Um, but we won't spoil that too much because we're doing an episode not later this year. Oh shit! Maybe I'm gonna watch. <laughs> you are gonna watch it. <laughs> How many years later was that? That was 2010. I want to say 2009, 2010 around that time. Yeah. No, 2008. 2008. I remember it being released. It was 2008, and I was so excited at the time because <laughs> this is one of my favorite films, and I grew up with it. And I thought, you know, the possibility of a sequel. They're bringing back Corey Feldman. Uh, he's dressing like he's 15 years old again for some reason. <laughs> you know, I thought it, this could be really, really good. And then, you know, your hopes and dreams kind of get crushed when you actually <laughs> watch it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. Were you excited for Corey Feldman in 2010? Yeah, were you like that was a bit uh, two thousand eight? Yeah, were you? I used to message him on MySpace. Was that a big, big deal in two thousand eight. I used oh, to message him on MySpace. Now we've got Corey Feldman for us. This is a bit of a weird story. Okay, um, in a bizarre, as we like to say in this podcast, in a bizarre sequence of events, around that time, I used to. <laughs> I got MySpace. I didn't know how to use it much, so I started messaging Corey Feldman. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm a really big fan." <laughs> Shut the fuck up. I'm, yeah, I'm a really big fan. You know, I love Goonies. I love Lost Boys. Friday the 13th Part 4. You know. Um, and he messaged me back. And, and my mum started messaging him. I started messaging him. I'm like, oh, Gary's a great kid. Like, I should probably stop messaging him now. This is getting a little weird. Uh, but then, you know, he's telling me he loves Fallout Boy. Um, it, yeah. And then it just stopped randomly. Probably for the best. <laughs> well, there you go. There's a claim to fame for you. <laughs> you had your moment. It was in your top eight friends. It was in my top eight. There you go. <laughs> um, these days, he's not quite the core family he used to be, is he? I'm not guessing. He's got he's his, he's got his music, music career. Yeah, he's um, had his struggles. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> put it like I don't think we've got enough time to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Struggles. I just leave it at that. He's had, he's had a tough time. Just, it. just watch, just watch the performance he did on, on live TV. That's that needs to be seen. <laughs> uh, it's essential viewing. But getting into trivia, this was Corey Haim and Corey Feldman's first film together, which marked the start of a popular eighties trend of two Corys, uh, in which they're starring in a number of teenage films together. I think this is the only one I've seen. The only one I can think of is Licence to Drive. Yeah. Um, which had Piper Laurie in, which is why I wanted to watch it. But that's about it. So it wasn't for the two Corys? No, no, no. No, no it's for a middle-aged actress. That's, that's why I watch these films. <laughs> that's why I watch any film. Because I'm stunning a middle-aged actress. Let's be fair. 
So Santa Cruz, where Santa Carla takes place, was once plagued with the reputation of being the murder capital of the world, as it's called in the film, because of a series of very brutal murders by three different very disturbed men in the early 70s. Uh, there was like a total of 28 murders over a 30-month period between 1970 and 1973. Wow. Who were the murderers? Uh, it was... Shall I read them for you? Uh, John Lindley Frazier, Her- Herbert Mullen, and Edmund Kemper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've got no plan. I mean, uh, Edmund Kemper. I, I messaged him on MySpace. Was he a big Fallout Boy fan? He was a huge Fallout Boy fan. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so G. Tom Mack wrote the theme song "Cry Little Sister" uh, to the film after only reading the script and without ever seeing a single frame of the film. The soundtrack is. Probably my favourite um, needle drop soundtrack. Uh, but it's, it's so good. It's iconic. It is, yeah. Yeah, it yeah is. the soundtrack's phenomenal on this movie. Yeah. I, we went to an event last year. Um, it was for the love of horror. No, not, well, it wouldn't have been last year, would it? The year before in Manchester. Um, and they had a uh, saxophone guy, Tim Capello. He mm-hmm. did performance of the song like he did in the film. Oh, wow. It was that was amazing. Yeah, I had I had shivered. It was just like watching that happen in front of me. It was, it was amazing. I had to be such a fan of the film. Because he's uh, a comeback. Tim Capello. He came back yeah. with a new album and stuff, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's also on cameo uh, now. <laughs> I've watched a few of his videos, and he like congratulates people for having birthdays. It's great. Um, <laughs> it ain't just figure either. No, they're on pumping iron. Mm-hmm. Um, but G. Tom Mack, he also did a performance, and everyone's expecting him to come out and just play Cry Little Sister, and that would be it. But he did like a whole set of this Lost Boys musical, and his projector screen in the background, his his bandmates, they, they had the iMac connected to it, and as he was performing, you could see him going through his desktop and everything. <laughs> come on, guys, get it together, get it together. <laughs> Um, Jamie Gertz was actually recommended by Jason Patrick. Billionaire Jamie Gertz now. She, she has Jamie made a name Gertz. for herself since this film. Um, Joel Schumacher was originally looking for a blonde, but, you know, Jason Patrick was like, Jamie Gertz is great. They previously starred in Solar Babies together. Um, and that's probably the reason why I recommended her. Has anyone seen Solar Babies? No, but I've got it on Blu-ray, and I've been meaning to watch it for so long, uh, and I, I'm going to have to rewatch it, you know, after looking at Lost Boys. I need to I need to go and see it for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. We we had a recommendation to cover this on a podcast a while back. I need to get it. We need to watch it. What's this. so bad? I've never heard of it. I don't know, but the poster looks great. Okay. <laughs> it's it's not, quite, quite funny. Sorry. <laughs> I think it's like a post-apocalyptic thing, and I think they maybe go around on roller skates or something like this. But oh, okay. I'm sure in this country it's out under the title Solar Warriors instead oh. of Solar Babies. Um, and you can get it on Blu-ray and stuff. I mean... I think we'll have to watch that. What more could you want from a film? <laughs> <laughs> I do find it quite funny that they were, weren't sure about her. You know, gorgeous actress, and, you know, she was highly recommended. But, I was hoping for a blonde, though. You know, you look at the same as blonde. So it's, uh... Come on, guys. Come on. <laughs> when asked what he did the film, Joe, Sh- Joe-, Joe Schumacher, Joel Schumacher simply stated, vampires are hot. They're the only erotic monsters. Frankenstein is not hot. 
No, the fancy chances with Frankenstein's monster. Um, no, no. no. I, I like a large neck on a man, so maybe, maybe square head. Is my neck that big? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> green skin tone. Actually, why is it green? Why is it like when did Frankenstein's monster become green? It's made up of a fucking corpse. Different corpse. wasn't green in the original film, was he? Wait, it's black and white film. Why are you saying he's green? Like in in popular <laughs> culture, am I wrong here? Grey. Okay. Okay, Charlie. What colour is Frankenstein? Well, no, I would monster. say green. I would say. Oh, okay. Well, thank green. you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Okay, well, you, there we go. Frankenstein's monster screen. Are you, are you happy now? Yeah, yeah. Good. Executive producer Richard Donner originally intended to direct the film himself, um, but he moved on to Lethal Weapon, and then Joel Schumacher was hired. It's got that sort of Richard Donner feel to it. It, it does feel a little, you know, Goonies-esque. Would you agree? There are moments that are very Goonies-esque. Yeah. Jim Carrey was originally offered the role of David. That could have been a very different film. <laughs> um, Mary Lambert was originally going to direct as well, but there was creative differences. And of course, she went on to uh, direct Near Dark. And that is... No. No? No, you're wrong. That's Catherine Bigelow. Pet Cemetery. She did Pet, Pet Cemetery. Yeah. But yeah, again, that could have been a very different film. <laughs> Tim Capello um, is... Has got a cool following, <laughs> as we've discussed already. Even has his own fan page. Are you part of the Tim Capello fan page? Tim Capello as the oily saxophone <laughs> player is on your notes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I, I just delivered the information. I, I wasn't particularly. I didn't think it was that memorable, but apparently everybody remembers of this part of the sound. Of this oily saxophone player. <laughs> I did stand a little when I realised he was in the um, at the very end of What's Love Got to Do with It. Uh, he was saxophone player for uh, Tina Turner. So when we get a live version of What's Love Got to Do With It, he is there. So I, st I stand a little bit then. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me a cameo, just based purely on that. Uh, absolutely. That 10 seconds. <laughs> you what's Love Got to Do With It. You will get congratulated for your birthday this year by Tim Um So throughout uh, Pride Month, we're asking a certain question with each film we discuss. So today I ask, what makes the Lost Boys gay? Please discuss amongst yourselves. I just asked the question. Um. Well, I mean, well, I mean, it's campus fuck. <laughs> you know, it's super camp. Um, there's a lot of queer coding. The director was gay. Um, and I don't think I need to say any more because we'll go through it thoroughly. Yeah. I think <laughs> within the uh, the episode. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Charlie? What's your interpretations on... Yeah, I just think, I mean, you got to start maybe with the costumes and the colours and the music. I mean, yeah. everything, like you said, everything's oily and glittery and uh, saxophones and uh, the cost. I mean, the costumes, like you said earlier, they are amazing. They're amazingly 80s. They are also amazingly camp, though. Yeah. Uh, everyone's in sort of like crop tops and cut off denim <laughs> sleeveless jackets and leather of course um yeah. so yeah and and i think also vampires just generally there's always i mean there is always a metaphor for sexuality and i think um this director's interpretation of it and how it just all has come together in the lost boys because he is gay uh i think you you just can't help that there even though there are no like outwardly gay characters in the film 
it is just like so camp and there's such just like an underlying tension uh between like you know the male characters and obviously they all look so pretty and sexy and uh joel schumacher said that he wanted to cast you know really beautiful people yeah. uh, and that is striking about the film everything you know like visually everything is very sort of stimulating in the film all the actors are, are really pretty um and all the boys are really pretty like it, it's something it's actually quite unusual if, if you think of any film where the male cast is so pretty and like so sort of smooth baby-faced and chiseled this film is definitely like up there you know absolutely absolutely so, getting into the film, after moving to a new town, two brothers discover that the area is a haven for vampires. And we start with Cry Little Sister playing straight away, uh, the opening credits, and we're taken to the carousel, where David and his vampire boy band are walking around the carousel with a guy with one big blonde streak and a killer jawline gets upset because David's checking out his denim girl. <laughs> Uh, yeah, or is that the guy with the skunk hair? <laughs> I just have him down as blonde streak, and his girlfriend is denim girl. I got, um, I put a group of youths with every single Bon Jovi haircut <laughs> get into an argument with a skunk haired dude on a merry go round. Security throws them off the boardwalk. Yeah. Uh, but literally, as they get on, you, it is every haircut Bon Jovi has ever had. It is, it is. There's the mullet, there's the shorter version in the late 90s that he had, very ahead of its time. Um, did he ever go like brunette? He must have been brunette once, Bon Jovi. I think so. Yeah. But yeah, the Christmas song. Definitely what they were going for, the Christmas song. <laughs> Sorry, our Bon Jovi knowledge is amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, so um, after they're kicked off the boardwalk, the cops walk into his car later that night and something flies down and takes him away screaming. Uh, great opening scene. I mean, it doesn't tell you too much. It definitely sets the bar with the camp value. Um, and yeah, it, it just really sets the tone really well, doesn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's... A lot of scenes in this are very crowded, yeah. Uh, um, particularly on the boardwalk, um, and it, it's. I, th I think it's just showing that they're kind of hidden in plain sight. Mm. You know, the, this group of vampires, and that's the whole idea: is that all these kids and these people are going missing and being killed, yeah. and yeah. the perpetrators are hiding in plain sight, which is why we get them within these very crowded scenes. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Lucy, Sam, Michael and the Nook are introduced as the driver to Santa Carla whilst changing the radio stations a few times before settling on a cover of People Are Strange. Uh, it's by Echo and the Bunny Man. Uh, would you like to say anything about Lucy? Lucy? Now, I'm going to probably mispronounce her name, but I am quite the stan for um, Diane Weiss. Weiss. I think it is how you pronounce it. Um, she's an absolute legend. She, um, I think this is the same year she won her Oscar for Hannah and Her Sisters. And she's just one of those actresses that makes anything she's in so much better. Um, she was recently in uh, I Care A Lot. She was. She was. Uh, where she was amazing in that as well. And I just loved every moment she was on the screen. Yeah. So yeah, a bit of a <laughs> <laughs> a middle-aged woman that I'm watching a film saw before. You know, there we go. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and again, 
uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, People Are Strange, what great cover, great addition to the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, it works. Works really well. Yeah. And then you have the reference to Jim Morrison within the cave. Absolutely. And, research. and then we get many, many sites of the 80s <laughs> within this opening sequence. Do either of you two have down some of the things we get? I don't actually know. No. No, neither do I. Wow, guys, thanks. You're a great house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and no, but I mean, off the top of my head, I mean... You can ask us these questions. You've got to warn us first. I wouldn't have made a point of it. It was a montage of very 80s people on amusement park rides. <laughs> we get mohawks. Um, yeah, no, I can't remember much. I was on just... We get mohawks. I've seen it so many times, you think I'd know. Um, yeah, it's a mullet in there. It, yeah, it's, it's every a, scene has a mullet in. <laughs> it's a great montage, it's a great montage. Um, and they arrive at Lucy's dad's house. And so memorable. <laughs> anyway, they uh, <laughs> up at Lucy's dad's house. He's only known as grandpa in the film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't done as Lucy's dad for a while, then grandpa after a while. That's he's just he's in the credits, he's just grandpa, isn't he? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, another great actor, um, Bernard Hughes, I want to say. Bernard Hughes, yeah. I only know him from Sister Act 2, uh, <laughs> back in the habit. Um, I don't know what else he was in. I think he was a, sort of a character actor. Yeah, I don't recognise him from anything. I, I, I think Sister Act 2 was the first one I'd seen him in when you showed me that. I knew he, he won an Emmy for Lou Grant, um, which didn't really mean much. Shall I be very unprofessional and have a little IMDb? <laughs> um, yeah, please do. <laughs> <laughs> Barnard Hughes. Well, he's most known for The Lost Boys. I was also in Tron. Oh, okay. Uh, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. Doc Hollywood. And I've also seen him in Sisters, Brian De Palma's Sisters. Oh, he was in Sisters. Was he? Who was he in that? I can't remember. But he oh. was in Sisters. Oh, there we go. Good for him. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a great comedic actor in this, anyway. Um, particularly, he is fantastic. Um, he's mem he's memorable. He's a memorable little part. Absolutely, it, it isn't the biggest role, is it? I mean, you know, and there's there's actually a lot of mystery surrounding him that I know a lot of fans discuss as to whether he was actually a vampire or not. Mm. Um, I mean, with you know the whole the drink at the end. Could you see what was in that drink? You know, it kind of looked a little red. And his whole little office thing he's got going on with the weird antlers and shit in the back of his house. It's all a little suspect, doesn't it? And then he yeah. reveals at the end that he knows there's vampires in Santa Carla as well. Yeah. So I'm good we didn't get a spin-off with, uh, with Grandpa. Just called Grandpa. Just called Grandpa. Um, but yeah, they, they go through... The, Sam and Michael go through the house. They discuss how... It looks like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house and there's no TV. And do you know what that means in the 80s? No MTV. That's no MTV. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I watched this was on MTV. It was that weird little stage between MTV stuff and being a music channel and starting to show reality TV shows. They also showed a bunch of films near Halloween. But yeah, that's the first time I watched this. Yeah, I used to watch MTV. Yeah, cool. you're cool. <laughs> The Sorry. sort of MTV culture of the time is something that sort of really comes into the film a lot. You know, obviously, 
they directly mention MTV, but then all the sort of like the, the soundtrack and then the sort of outfits. Um, but even like the uh, death by stereo and all these yeah. gags in it is like very MTV generation vampire movie, you know? Yeah, I mean, very much like uh, from around the same time, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Um, you know, mm-hmm. again, a film with a very MTV soundtrack, all these little uh, jokes and such that are very of its time and very, very MTV style, you know, do you know what I mean? You, yeah, no, absolutely. I feel, I mean, Night of the Creeps had that same sort of feeling about it as well. I, I just love that little era of MTV horror of in the 80s. It's so mm. entertaining, it's so camp. Well, I don't think it's an accident that they have Rob Lowe and Molly <laughs> Ringwald it's as hosters within Sam's room. Yeah. You know, you're very much in that Brat Pack era. And, you know, I mean, you've got Corey Feldman, Corey Haim within the film, yeah. uh, Kiefer Sutherland, you could put into that category yeah. um, of the, the Brat Pack, you know, the teen idols that are on, you know, the teen people, teen people, uh, teenagers, teen people, word, teen people uh, teenagers, um, they go to see, they flock to see, and it's all based around, you know, MTV, you know, you don't only watch the film you have to buy the soundtrack and you see the music video on mtv and it's mm. all that business yeah it's so fucking cool i was definitely born in the wrong decade yeah. <laughs> you can never you, you can never make something this out there these days could you no. and when i say out there i mean like the fashion and you know how in your face camp it is it's just you know i mean it's how you set decades apart i mean you've got the 80s is very much this sort of style your 90s is definitely once you get past a certain point everyone's trying to be scream um the 2000s obviously you know you get into saw and the whole torture porn thing and then after that point it's just a lot of really well-made horror films um i don't know there's a specific um I mean, we've got the right person here for it, you know. I mean, you know, neon, <laughs> again, neon lighting, sim soundtracks, everything's just, it is getting, you know, everything's really cool again. Um, but there's just something about the Lost Boys and a specific style that, you know what I mean? You said it to me earlier. No, I, I, I know, know what you words. mean. It's definitely a product of its time. You couldn't just take this and put it into any other period. Yeah. Because it wouldn't work. Yeah. You know, you, you'd be, they'd be Googling vampire lore you know, on their phones yeah. after the, the first hint, you know, um, there, there would be videos of these people, you know, the, the security guard would be holding up a mobile phone with Kiefer Sutherland coming down to yeah. kill him, you know, it would be all over Facebook Live. So you can't have these sort of films within any period. It's absolutely a product of its time. Um, mainly because of, you know, the hair and the costume and all that business but also because this story could not work now mm. so everything has to be a product of its yeah. time yeah i think right from the opening the filmmakers have really made an effort to sort of uh put you straight into the sense of fun and cool you know being set like right from the get-go on the sort of uh the, the carousel and the roller coaster it's like this movie is a, like a theme park attraction it's like yeah. disneyland and I agree that I miss that type of horror that we got in the 80s, where it felt like theme park attraction horror. 
you know, yeah. roller coaster horror. Nowadays, everything, I mean, you are right, it, it is sort of starting to make a bit more of a comeback, you know, more colourful, fun horror. Um, but I think above all else, like this film and a lot of films from the 80s, I think they really just wanted to appeal to the, the kids and the teenagers and just be really fun and, you know, have uh, fun rock soundtracks and stuff like that. And uh, sort of at the same time, they were kind of scary, but also probably more fun than scary. That's the sort of horror I've always loved as a viewer is to sit and just like have a really good fun time, you know, like uh, eating your popcorn with a beer and just like enjoying uh, you know, gore and good music and 80s fashion. Um, so that is kind of something that, that's been lost. And I think Lost Boys is like a perfect example of it at its absolute peak, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, recently, uh, Jordan Peele made a big reference to Lost Boys in Us. Mm. Um, the opening scene is set at the same fairground mm. where the op- where, where this film is set. And, you know, they even mentioned, oh, they're making a film down the road and that's meant to be Lost Boys. So mm. it's, it's good to see that little thing, you know, these little things coming back. Um, but yeah. But then also, I think maybe we're at a point where everything kind of has to have a message. Mm. And sometimes it's, you, you don't just sit down and watch a film and just enjoy a film. You know, obviously we're sat here and we're doing a podcast episode on Lost Boys and we're going to go into detail about what makes it gay or or what this means and what that means. But I think ultimately Lost Boys isn't really telling a political... It's not making a political statement or it's not... It doesn't have to say anything. It can just be an enjoyable film. And I think sometimes these days, you know, and I enjoy it. I, I love dissecting a film. I love a layered film but sometimes it is nice to sit down and just watch a fun film and be like yeah that was good that was that was fun yeah my probably most recent one that did that is freaky yeah uh really enjoyed freaky uh it was just a fun film to watch and yeah. i didn't feel the need to try and think what the filmmaker was doing or why they were doing it or what that says about you know society yeah i mean christopher landon is definitely going for that 80s style of his films as well um, where it is just fun camp and entertaining um, and with you know LGBT representation as well throughout his films yeah. so there's room for both oh yeah absolutely uh, so Lucy and her dad have a chat about how she didn't improve her situation by getting divorced <laughs> um, the only woman he's ever met that didn't improve her situation <laughs> by getting divorced <laughs> Um, Lucy's dad gives the house rules. Michael wants to know if it's true that Santa Carla is the murder capital of the world. Uh, and he's told if all the corpses around here would stand up at once, we'd have one hell of a popularity problem. Uh, <laughs> and also, uh, Lucy's dad informs Sam and Michael that he likes to read a TV guide so he doesn't have to watch TV. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that makes sense. Yeah. And then this is when we're introduced to Tim Capello, who is all oiled up. Thrusting those hips and performing, I still believe everyone's having a great time, aren't they? Definitely. <laughs> um, this one introduced a star who is absolutely serving and having a dance along, whilst Michael's being a bit awkward and just watching her for way too long from a distance. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, living her best life. Um, what I was in this next thing, I think you summed this up to me earlier. Um, the best way when Lucy goes to the video store. 
Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I said, I have put down uh, Lucy, being the true queen that she is, finds a lost child, a job, and potentially a boyfriend within the space of five minutes. <laughs> you know, that's some true queen shit there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, she's she's looking for a job. Um, she finds there's this lost child out the front of this video store called Terry. Called Terry. Terry. Charlie <laughs> Terry. <laughs> and uh, the mother comes along, found the mother. She's in the video store. She didn't want a video. She wants a job. Um, she's having a good old flirt with Max, isn't she? Yes. Uh, Max, who is really good. At, who's the actor who plays Max? I cannot remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, he does a really good job um, throughout the film. Yeah, he's got a certain a certain amount of camp value to him as well, hasn't he? In the same way that Jerry has in Fright Night. That's who he reminded me of a lot. Um, in the sort of way that you know, you know he's a, I mean you know he's a straight character, but he's a little very camp. Well, I'm not even sure if you can read him as a straight character by the end. That's true. That's true. Um, oh, I I know why I love him. He was in Overboard. I oh, was it. Yeah, oh. in the same year he was in Overboard. He was um, Goldie Horn's fiance. In what's his name? Uh, his name's Edward Herman. There we go. Um, yeah, very. So... I do apologise. Very unprofessional. <laughs> I should have, should have known that already. We're 123 episodes in. People know. Yeah, we're people know. And then do all our research. <laughs> if, we, if we were absolutely perfect, people would probably stop listening. To yeah. <laughs> They're just like laughing at us for being dumb bitches. Um, so Max gets annoyed when David and the boys are in the store and kicks them out. Uh, and he introduces himself and his dog fawn, and then that's when Lucy reveals she's looking for a job. Uh, Michael's looking around for Star, and Sam finds a comic book store run by Edgar and Alan Frog, uh, with their passed out hippie parents sat next to a TV. Um, Is that who they were? I yeah, I suppose. Like Charles Manson. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. That makes sense now. Edgar Frog is played by Corey Feldman, doing his best Sylvester Stallone and Rambo impression. <laughs> yeah, his, his voice has dropped a lot since uh, uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Four. Yeah, it, it makes you wonder how much of that he's putting on. Um, <laughs> I don't think he sounded like that in Stand by Me. That no. wasn't too far away no. from this. <laughs> um, and and the sequels, he doesn't drop that that voice either oh, he's, okay. he's very much talking like this the whole time <laughs> like, but you can tell he's really putting it on in the sequels um yeah and, and alan frog's just there isn't he he's, he's just there to say something funny every now and then <laughs> yeah their introduction's a bit gay don't you think it, it is well they, i mean they read sam's fashion sense to film yeah but they kind of also <laughs> look like they're checking him out yeah no, obviously they're checking him out in case he's a vampire, but it doesn't read like that no. straight away. <laughs> just like this guy, like, like if a really hot guy entered a club and everyone's just like staring, like, oh, who's this? In his incredibly large jacket. His Burberry jacket. Yeah. And, uh, that, that, that shirt was say, made a statement, didn't it? It did, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, so they're, they're just basically, oh yeah, clothes are shit. And he's looking for a Batman number 15. And tells them they've got all the comic books in the wrong order. Uh, in return, Edgar gives him Vampires Everywhere, a comic book that could save his life. Uh, <laughs> and they're interrupted when the real villains of the film, Blonde Streak and Denim, return and steal a bunch of comics. They do, actually, yeah. <laughs> yes. They're, like, hanging around for ages, and then they just, like, steal, like, two comics <laughs> and run away. Like, 
<laughs> Michael finds Star, who gets on the back of David's motorbike, who we're reintroduced to with his boys, and they all ride away um, before murdering Blonde Streak and Denim, who are reading comics in the back of the car. Yeah, yeah. So um, he's the, the, um, Skunk Hair is trying it on. His name's Blonde Streak. Oh, anyway, Skunk Hair <laughs> is trying it on really badly with his girlfriend, and this is a weird. A weird scene because she's just there reading a comic and just laughing. Yeah. And completely ignoring his advances. Um <laughs> we know they're a couple by this point, they're always together. Yeah. It was really strange that she was just like <laughs> the fuck was that? That was her laughing. Oh, that was her laughing. Great impression. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they, they have to spice up quite quickly. Um, Sam and his grandpa get in the car. But in a very comic book way, I yeah, thought. Yeah. The whole idea, and I don't know budget constraints probably, but the whole idea of that these people are being killed by just being swooped away. Yeah. Um, and we just get a very 80s sort of swooping camera. And the red lighting in the scene is really good as well. It really, really sets the tone for the horror elements and whatnot. And, and it has a great score as well. I mean, I know we spoke about the soundtrack. But the score is also really good. Yeah, yeah. I really love the use of um, dry ice as well. A lot yes. Throughout the film. Yes. Yeah, very uh, Bonnie Tyler. Um, Sam and his grandpa get in the car. The grandpa starts it up and says they're going to town, but gets out of the car because that's as close to town as he likes to get. Yeah. And Sam goes back to the comic book store for some more Frog Brother action. Um, Alan asks if he's noted any, noticed anything strange about Santa Carla. And they suggest that there's vampires, and Sam wants to know they're sniffing on newsprint or something. <laughs> but the comic book store is just their cover. Which is a very old reference, which I didn't really understand. Um, <laughs> do you do you remember uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, when they all get their test and yeah. they all sniff it? Yeah. I don't really get that, but apparently there was some ink during the 80s that if you really gave it a good sniff, you could get <laughs> high off it. Wow. So there's your reference. Thank you. That's very educational. <laughs> um, this comic book store is just a cover for the Frog Brothers. They're fighters for truth, justice, and the American way. They give Sam the Vampires Everywhere comic book again, this time with their number on the back, and tell him to pray he doesn't have to call them. And then we get some in excess playing whilst Michael's buying a cool new leather jacket. Uh, the woman's selling, selling it to him, and she's convinced it suits him though, isn't she? It does suit him, don't you think? It does, yeah. She, yeah. She's really silent it to him. Uh, yeah. He then watches someone getting their ear pierced when Star shows up, tells him it's a rip-off and offers to do it for him. And they introduce themselves to each other. Uh, they plan to go for food, but David shows up and he's not happy with that. So we get an iconic scene where David challenges Michael to keep up with him and the rest of the vampires whilst they ride their motorbikes across the beach whilst lost in the shadows by Lou Grand plays. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when David says, uh, you don't have to beat me, Michael, you just have to keep up. Yeah. Um, I thought it was kind of flirtatious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, he flirts with the entire film. That is more flirtatious than, you know, we're we're not actually, we're not actually fighting for Star's affection. Mm. I actually want you. (laughs) Yeah. Essentially. (laughs) (laughs) But it was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you appreciate in the song Lost in the Shadows when they feel the need to shout the name of the film after the second chorus? 
And like, Lost Boys! <laughs> so, thanks, thanks for the reminder. Okay, you sounded like someone calling in their dogs. You were playing out in. Lost Boys, come on! Dinner! It's such a good song, though. I think that's my favourite song of the soundtrack. I mean, there's a lot of good ones, but I love Foreigner. I'm a huge Foreigner fan, and it's just such a good song. Yeah. Absolutely, and it, it that is that is uh, um, again like the film itself. That song in particular, out of all of them, is the most eighties one. Yeah, and even the music video as well. You know, it, it's great. It's so good. Uh, they eventually reach the end of a cliff where Michael nearly rides over. He punches David and offers to fight just him. When David says, "How far are you willing to go, Michael?" Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, they all go to David's cave, which has a Jim Morrison poster. David's cave. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, there's lots of random pieces of fabric, um, bones, and candles. Um, did this remind you of the hunger? Okay, the uh, the cur- the amount. Oh, of the floaty curtain. Yeah, I suppose so. But then that's very eighties anyway, isn't it? I mean. There's always a floaty curtain somewhere, <laughs> uh, particularly by Vampire. I mean, um, surely it was the Salem's Lot. Was there? And there was always curtains, curtains in Salem's Lot flapping in any vampire film. Okay, I, I think it's just from Total Eclipse of the Heart, if I'm honest. It is Total Eclipse of the Heart. <laughs> Definitely something like um, uh, Fright Night. You would have floaty curtains, you know. Yeah. Salem's Lot kept it a little bit more serious, but. Uh, when I did uh, Vampire Virus, we had to have, obviously, floaty curtains. Absolutely. And absolutely. Uh, I, I remember I had to go and get, like, a certain type of fabric for the floaty curtains so that they could float <laughs> And then still the, the fans that I was blowing on the curtains weren't making them float the right way. So I had two guys laying on the floor, sort of, like, wafting. They were holding the curtains and just sort of, like, wafting them up and down to put- <laughs> These outrageously floaty curtains. I mean, that was the level of floaty that, you know, it had to be. <laughs> so the floaty curtain is very much an essential part of, you know, the 80s camp vampire movie. Exactly. And, and I'm glad and I'm glad you realised that floaty curtains make it in a vampire film. And it was great to see a vampire virus. It was, it was a nice little, uh, nice little touch there. Um, not enough vampire films after that have, have included floaty curtains, in my opinion. <laughs> The Friday Night remake definitely didn't have floaty curtains. No, well, it was a thing for everyone had a thing for blinds, didn't they? It was definitely uh, blinds. Sort of uh, early two thousand, like through the two thousand, everyone sort of got yeah. to blinds, haven't they? You can't really yeah. do a floaty blind. So fair play, Charlie. Fair play for bringing the curtains back. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate it. I think there needs to be a comeback, just generally, of you know, yeah, floaty up curtains with a bit of dry ice coming through the window. You know, yes, <laughs> makes every horror film better. Absolutely, it does. <laughs> Um, Sam is... That's really... like a good night out as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we should do a, a vampire night and invite people around and just bring... You've got to bring curtains with you. <laughs> um, Sam's reading his vampire comics in his bedroom with his posters of Molly Ringwald, Rob Lowe showing off his uh, his belly, and reformed schoolgirls as well, which is a random. Very random. Have you seen reformed schoolgirls? I haven't actually. Um, it's it's all right. Yes, yeah. it's kind of like a remake of Cage. It is. It? it is a remake. It, of it is. Uh, yeah, it's it's a comedy remake of a women in prison film. Right. Um, but 
through the obviously 80s sensibilities because uh, Caged was from 1950. Mm. Um, so it's very, very much in keeping with big um, wardens beating up naked women in the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, that's a women in prison film. It's the same it, it's thing. Not, you know, in each film. It's a lost genre, isn't it? Women in prison that needs to make a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not sure if uh, those <laughs> 2021 sensibilities. I'm not sure <laughs> how much you could really get away with. Well, <laughs> if you bring some floaty curtains in as well, you probably could get away with a fair bit. I don't know why they'd ran, randomly be in the middle of a prison, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a horror court trash over exclusive. We're bringing back women in prison with <laughs> curtains. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? I mean, there's an about? obvious, there's a really obvious joke that I will not make. No, 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 no. Oh, I, I, refuse. It. I refuse. Goodbye. Oh. No. Oh, you fucking <laughs> twat. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> We're professionals. Um, anyway, so yeah, Molly Ringwald, Reform Schoolgirls, and Rob Lowe. Um, what do we have to say about this, especially Rob Lowe? Because in this next scene, Sam's grandpa brings him a stuffed beaver, literally, and, and animals. Stuffed yeah. beaver, yes. Um, for, basically, forced on him. He doesn't want this beaver. Um, him and his mum are discussing how he's scared of the closet monster. And then Sam proceeds to put the beaver in the closet with the Rob Lowe poster on the door. If that's not symbolism, what is? This had to be the filmmakers, you know, messing around trying to make some sort of a, a joke, you know, like, why does he randomly bring in a stuffed beaver? <laughs> it's like something out of Naked Gun, you know, just a, a stuffed beaver just suddenly appears, you know, and then uh, all the talk of the closet, like you said, and putting it in the... Yeah, and, and the fact they just got those three posters, and the one that happens to be on the closet is the gayest one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Also, the fact that Lucy said that she got a divorce, one of the reasons she got a divorce from his dad is that his dad didn't believe in the closet monster. Mm. Um, so I don't... But then we're getting into the Terry, like, every male character in this film is somehow gay. <laughs> Even, the dad, is gay. Even the dad is gay. <laughs> Grandpa's the only one that isn't gay. <laughs> Although we never actually see the, the widow that he goes on a date with. So wow. even he might be. Just everyone in this film is gay. Okay. <laughs> Everything. Even the ones we never see are just gay. Everyone's gay. So you think the widow Johnson might be the widower? Johnson. Widower Johnson. <laughs> it might, might be. be Mr. Johnson. <laughs> um, so it's feeding time in the cave. David gives Michael some rice before telling him he's eating maggots. Michael looks down, it is maggots, and he throws the rice on the floor. When he looks again, it's rice. Uh, David offers him some noodles, and they're worms, but when David eats them, they're noodles. Iconic scene. Um, yeah, just a, a really great touch to the film. Yeah, it's, it's iconic, but do you not think the rice and the noodles were really boring looking? <laughs> like there was no veg, there was, there was no sauce. Like he's ordered this takeaway and it's just plain boiled rice and plain noodles. I'd rather eat the maggots. The film's really done no favours for, you know, Chinese takeaway. <laughs> <The American people's laughs> now looking to a pot of boiled rice and just see maggots. <laughs> 
Um, and and now this this next scene, I think, is making a big statement. Considering the time it was released, uh, and obviously we had the uh, the AIDS pandemic going on at the same time and whatnot. Um, David drinks some blood from a fancy looking bottle and offers some to Michael uh, and says, drink some of this, Michael, be one of us. Of course, Star warns him that it's blood, whilst David and the rest of them all egg him on and he drinks the blood. I mean, that imagery alone, given the time it's released, th- that really feels like that wasn't accidental. Yeah. That that was really saying something. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, th- I think a lot of the film deals with the AIDS pandemic mm. as well. Uh, that scene pretty much full on, you know. Yeah. Um, seeing a man drink another man's blood yeah. in a film in 1987 is really... I, I mean, now it's like, that's, you know, takes you back a little bit. But yeah. then, with everything that was going on, um, I, I think, for, for me, the, the idea of people just going missing, and mm. we see a lot throughout, the, a lot of reference to uh, people just disappearing, yeah. the whole idea that the vampires just make these people disappear, there's nothing left of them, essentially. Mm. I think that's very in keeping with how people saw the AIDS pandemic. Yeah. And a lot of people, we've watched a lot, a lot of documentaries on, on the time, and the idea that people would lose friends, you know, uh, they would see a friend and then never see them again. They would yeah. disappear. Yeah essentially, and I think the film absolutely deals with that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I, I think um, after he's tasted this blood as well, Michael shows some signs of somebody who's dealing with AIDS. Yeah. And I, I know it darkens a, um, a quite a light film, mm. reading it like that, mm. um, but you can absolutely read it like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you agree? Yeah, it just it sort of seems to be something that now goes hand in hand with the vampire film, and I wonder where it first really started. Maybe it was the Lost Boys. I, don't, I guess I don't know enough about vampire films, but um, you know, even when this um, company approached me to make Vampire Virus, the whole point was, um, you know, it's a film about someone who thinks they've got an STD, some sort of like sexual disease after after having sex with a stranger. And then, you know, then they become a vampire. But it's just funny how even now, um, you know, companies can come to you with this idea, you know, of tying together the two vampires and sexual disease and stuff like that. It's just yeah. interesting how it became sort of part of vampire law, you know. Yeah. And and I think, yeah, I think it will always be around. That, that message will always be within vampire films. I think... Uh, it was Near Dark the same year as Lost Boys? Because I feel mm. like Near Dark really dealt with it as well. Um, you know, especially with, with the people around the main character when they were being, you know, really accepting of him being a vampire and stuff. So during certain scenes near the end of the film, you know, not to spoil Near Dark. Um, but yeah, and, and I think from that point onwards, you can really see it. I mean, but mm. I think this was definitely the most the most obvious. I mean, even when you see David drinking the blood, it zooms in on him and it's silence. It's one of the rare moments in the film with no soundtrack at all. It's just complete silence. And you know, that's Joel Schumacher giving this message. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I th- and I, I think as a society, you know, the, the AIDS pandemic, just until recently, 
you know, there was no real cure for it or prevention for it. Uh, I mean, now, you know, medicines uh, that make it livable. It, but back then it was a death sentence. Mm. It, it really was. Um, and that continued for years and years and years and years. So it's always been ingrained into my mind that, you know, that it's a possibility. You should always be careful. Everybody knows that now. Um, so as an audience, we can read it like that yeah. as well. You know, we will sort of be like, oh, okay. You know, this is how I'm reading it. Everybody reads yeah. things differently, but that's absolutely how I interpreted a lot of this film. Yeah. Um, yeah. After that scene, we get uh, Bill from Bill and Ted, who's in this. Um, <laughs> not a lot of lines, surprisingly, for, for around this time for Alex Winter. Um, this is before Bill and Ted, though. Was it before Bill and Ted? When yeah. was Bill and Ted? Was that 88? 88, right? 89, I think it was. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. um, Yeah, he's pushing David around in the wheelchair. The boys tell Michael he's one of them now. And Michael drinks more blood whilst Cry Little Sister plays again. And I like how they insert that song during certain scenes, that certain, like, really important points of the film um, to add more of an impact to the song. They all go to a railway bridge. Again, another really iconic scene. They all jump off and dangle underneath it. Michael does the same. And uh, a train goes over the top and they all start dropping off into the smoke below. And they say, you're one of us, Michael, let go. Again, there's a lot that could be read into that. Michael eventually lets go and falls onto his bed. Yeah, that, I think the majority of the dry ice budget went on that scene. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, um, I, don't, I, I didn't really know what happened after he dropped and then dropped into bed. I'm assuming, I'm assuming again that they didn't have the budget to show any of them actually flying. No. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably how you meant to interpret that. Well, you get, I mean, you get one one or two scenes with the flying, don't you? So yeah. I think they use all the budget. Yeah, the budget definitely goes towards the end of the film rather than the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam wakes him up at 2pm, gives him the phone to speak to his mum and Michael needs his sunglasses. Lucy asks him to babysit Sam whilst she goes out for dinner with Max for her first of uh, many failed attempts, attempted dates with Max. Yes, sir. It's now the evening and Grandpa puts on some Windex. Did I get that right? Windex, Windex yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's got a date with the Widow Johnson. May or may not be the Widow uh, Johnson. Uh, mm-hmm. He's taking a stuffed animal for her and Michael asks if he stuffed Mr. Johnson for her. And Sam isn't amused. I was thought I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> uh, Michael now has an earring, and Sam wants to know if he got his new attitude problem for watching too much Dynasty. Yeah, that's quite a camp reference as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I suppose the sleeping until two and going out at night yeah. is normal. You know, getting your ear pierced normal teenager behaviour. Yeah. So it's a bit, it's a bit like, um, you know, <laughs> I think I'm being a bit harsh on him. You know? <laughs> um, David and the vampires show up outside, ride their mo- motorbikes around for a bit. Uh, Sam wants to know what's going on, but Michael tells him to take a bath. Um, Michael starts freaking out in the kitchen and drops a carton of milk, while Sam sings along to Ain't Got No Home by Clarence Frogman Henry in the bath. A song that includes the lyrics, I ain't got a man. Take from that what you will. Um, 
But yeah, it's a proper camp bubble bath it as well. Is. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> camp bubble bath. A bubble bath's a camp. <laughs> bubble bath's a camp. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's no, de- you know, you can't imagine Bruce Willis in a bubble bath. <laughs> Can you? I've never thought about that before. Now, but now you mention it, you've got a point. You've got a point. Yeah. Anyway, um, probably the weirdest point you've raised on this podcast. No, and probably the most accurate as well. Bubble baths by nature are camp. I love a bubble bath. So Michael approaches the bathroom and Manuk attacks him. Uh, Sam finds Michael with a big bite mark on his hand covered in blood from Manuk. And Sam realises that Michael has a transparent reflection. To which he says... My own brother, my own brother, a goddamn shit-sucking vampire. Well, you wait till mum finds out, buddy. And yeah, now now Sam knows. Yeah, no, the idea of a transparent uh, reflection. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's somebody literally disappearing in front of you. Yeah. Idea again. Um, I hate to beat a dead horse about the thing, but you know, <laughs> about the AIDS pandemic. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so he goes to his bedroom and calls the Frog Brothers. Um, they ask him if he sleeps a lot, if he's afraid of sunlight, if he has bad breath and long fingernails. And they tell him to kill Michael. Uh, he says he can't do it. They offer to do it for him, which he still isn't happy with. So they tell him to get himself a garlic T-shirt or it's his funeral. Michael starts floating to the ceiling. garlic T-shirt? Well, he, does, he takes it quite literal, doesn't he? And literally creates a garlic T-shirt. Um, <laughs> Michael starts floating to the ceiling, lets himself out of the window, whilst Lucy calls Sam, and uh, Michael starts floating outside of Sam's window, and he starts screaming to Lucy on the phone, who rushes home and leaves Max all alone at the restaurant. Uh, Michael tells Sam he's not a vampire, to which Sam asks him if he's the flying nun. Michael begs him to let him inside, so he does, and agrees to make up a story to tell their mum. No. <laughs> Another very gay reference from Sam there. Uh, do you know The Flying Nun? No. It was a comedy series in the 60s, uh, which was literally Sally Field as a nun who, when the wind caught her habit, she could fly. <laughs> um, so she would just go around in this comedy series and as a flying nun. Um, so, I mean, these references are gayer than mine, let's be fair. I looked at the uh, original writer of The Lost Boys, I've, I've forgotten what her name was, I'd have to look on IMDb, but she wrote stuff like episodes of The Golden Girls, and ah. the script originates from her, she did the first draft of it and then went through a whole bunch of changes, and she tried to, she, she sold it to... Um, was it Warner Brothers who did this? Uh, sold it to Warner Brothers for uh, like a huge chunk of money. Apparently, it was like a very sought-after script. Um, but then it got changed so much that um, she wanted to have her name removed from it. Um, but she wasn't allowed because um, a certain amount of money had been paid for it, which meant she couldn't actually get her name completely removed. But it's just an interesting origin and all these um, references that you're bringing up. I feel like, I don't know, I just feel like there's a sort of like Golden Girls comparison to the sort of the writing style and the gags. Absolutely Golden Girls. Yeah, yeah. That, that I'm, makes I'm a big sense. Golden Girls yeah. stan and I'm very thankful <laughs> for that little information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it does make sense. I mean, those those sort of references are the parts of Eva Tower where they left her script in there in those certain scenes. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, no, that's amazing. It is weird to hear a, a teenage boy reference the flying nun, though. <laughs> <laughs> Bit weird. <laughs> Lucy comes home and Sam blames the screaming on a scary comic book he read. Uh, Lucy picks up the milk carton from the floor and we get a zoom in on a missing notice on the side of it from Laddie Thompson, who we were introduced to briefly earlier in the film, who is a kid that hangs around with David and the vampires. Uh, Sam wears a garlic necklace and goes and sleeps in his mum's bed that night. And Max comes home to fawn, a vampire kite as well. And David and the vampires showing up on their motorbikes. Yeah, I wasn't 100% sure about what this scene was meant to do. I'm assuming it was just to make Max a bit of a red herring. Yeah. Um, but the, the bat vampire, not the vampire bat, but the bat kite. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I was for, <laughs> admittedly. Uh, we get one of the best floaty curtain scenes of the film next, when Michael goes to see Star and they start having sex with the cry little sister. The curtains are there to distract you from a very tepid sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if either of them were into it, let's be fair. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, I think there's an extended version on the deleted scenes. The curtains aren't as floaty in that version. Um, but I mean, curtains win every time, so you know. Yeah, I think floaty curtains really do exaggerate, you know, every great 80s sex scene, you know. Yeah, have you seen The Hunger? I actually haven't, and I'm and I have been meaning to watch it for so long. If you love floaty curtains, that is your <laughs> that is the ultimate floaty curtains film, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think any sex scene would be big better with floaty cans. Yes, that's true. The room, the room, you know. <laughs> <laughs> They're not floating, but there's curtains there. <laughs> Showgirls, that would have been much better. There's some floaty curtains. That yeah, pool. You reference Showgirls in every time. I, I have to, I have to. I'm sure, I mean, everything's floaty in Showgirls, floaty costume, <laughs> float stage. <laughs> more, more flappy in Showgirls, so floaty. <laughs> you, you, you've been advertising Showgirls. Because it's, one, it's, it's an amazing and every gay person should watch it. It's, it's a coming of age film for promos. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway. They're surrounded by lots of floaty curtains and candles. I'm going to go from that point. Um, it looks a little dangerous when we the candles as well. I'm sure uh, you know, you know I that. hate an unattended candle in a film. Uh, <laughs> oh, it pisses me off. Hate it. Hate it. Look after your candles. Yeah, you've got a free password because Werewolf in England was set in the olden days, so there was an excuse for the candles oh, there, wasn't there? Candle. So... No, and I mean an unattended candle. <laughs> so it's when someone walks into a room and there's like 10 candles everywhere and no one's been in the room for like three hours. <laughs> that pisses me off. I'm like, that's so dangerous. I it's think really the, the worst one for you was Zombie Fleshy is free. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was a room in that film for such a long time with just these candles, no one in it. And they were just there for extra. Yeah, no one's been here for 500 years. And why are the candles <laughs> still there? <laughs> What's that about? What's that about? <laughs> Don't get me started on the weekend. <laughs> also, um, whilst I brought it up, um, can I just thank you for actually making a werewolf film with a guy in a costume? Because <laughs> it's been so long since we've had one of those, and it was great. 
Well, werewolves, uh, they're so tricky, you know. Obviously, nowadays, everything with werewolves, they tend to be CGI. Yeah. But, I mean, it, personally, for me, if it's a CGI werewolf, I just, I'm not counting it as a werewolf movie. I'm not, I'm not counting it even as a movie. Like, until I see a good CGI werewolf, but I just never have. I suppose maybe uh, the Wolfman, um, like the 2010 Wolfman. Mm. That was okay, I suppose. But I guess before that, you got, like, Dog Soldiers. I think they really nailed the werewolves in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but no, I mean practical werewolves. You know, you have to go practical if you're doing werewolves. Absolutely. But at the same time, they are bloody difficult. You know, <laughs> just the whole thing is just difficult to have werewolves, uh, men in suits, not being able to see where they're going. Um, this year, I just shot a whole new um, werewolf film because Werewolf in England um, sold really well in this country. So the same company. Uh, you know, asked for another werewolf film sort of as soon as possible. Um, so within only about three months of Werewolf in England coming out on DVD here, um, I was off shooting another one, which is what I'm working on uh, in terms of post-production at the moment, another werewolf film with more werewolf men in suits. So, yes. <laughs> as, as much as it sounds like a pain for you to... Uh... To guide people in werewolf suits and not be able to see everywhere, I'm going to be very sad to say I'm really happy about that because the more the better, the more the better. I love, I love a werewolf film, and, and like you said, when it's CGI, it, it does take you out of it. And yes. you know that that Wolfman remake had a, had a fair bit of CGI in that, uh, and it, it wasn't completely terrible, but it was just like the transformation scene. If you compare something like that to something like you know, obviously the main one is American Werewolf in London, mm -hmm. it's not not quite the same. No. <laughs> um but yeah werewolf tangent over um they oh shit are we still on that sex scene um yeah so the sex scene would be better with a werewolf is that where we were at <laughs> if a so. werewolf randomly came into that scene yeah that and less candles less candles okay that's where we are Oh, yeah, because it was candles we spoke about last. Okay, so it cuts to flying through clouds and into the cave. Michael comes home looking all cool with his sunglasses on. Uh, Lucy wants to know what's going on with him and if it's something to do with a girl. And we get the exact line of dialogue. I have way more serious things on my mind than girls in school. And there's things you wouldn't. And then Lucy continues, things I wouldn't understand. And Michael walks away. So girls aren't on his mind, even though he's just been with Star. Yeah, I didn't think he looked cool though. I Did you not? No, he took the glasses off. He looked very tired and very pale <laughs> and quite ill. Yeah, I mean, like, I always look tired. So. <laughs> <laughs> Judging, you know, it's my, that's my cool standards. That's, that's the, cool the standard. highest it gets. But no, I, I, again, you know, I, I feel like he's being represented as someone who's unwell. Yeah. Um, obviously, in the context of the film, it's because he hasn't fed. He's a vampire who hasn't fed. Yeah. Um, and he needs to feed to survive. Um, he can't, you know, eat or drink anything else. It, like when he dropped the milk on the floor, it's because he couldn't stomach milk. Um, I read this as, again, you know, in terms of the AIDS pandemic, yeah. and he's literally dying in front of her, mm -hmm. and she can't do anything about it, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. She didn't put that much effort into it, though. So the only time they have this conversation... <laughs> just, it's a bit weird. It's just this one moment. I wouldn't understand. No, you wouldn't. Oh, okay, okay. You carry on now. Let's hope no one tries to kill us all by the end. <laughs> 
Lucy takes Max a bottle of wine to apologise for leaving him at the restaurant. Sam stays in the car and reads a page in Vampires Everywhere about the Hounds of Hell, whilst Lucy is attacked by Fawn the dog. Great scene. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. Um, Sam, Again, because Diane... Yeah, but she does do a really good job. A really good yeah. job. She can do everything. Sam goes to speak to the Frog Brothers, and they discuss how you don't become a full vampire until you feed. And if you kill the head vampire, you'll turn back to normal. And they figure out that Max could be the head vampire. He's coming over for dinner that night, isn't he? He is. And Michael invites him in. Yeah, as the man of the house. Which I was a little confused, because surely it's um, Grandpa's house. Yeah, and Grandpa's watching this as well, and looks looks very suspicious. I mean, at that point, he knows, obviously. Yeah. Um, Max brings Lucy some flowers and tells her that Fawn will behave if she goes back to his house. Sam introduces the Frog Brothers and tells them to join them for dinner. Uh, Lucy says someone has bad breath, so obviously they all stare at Max. Mm-hmm. We get a really great scene where they just do these little uh, these little vampire traps that just don't work whatsoever. Um, Sam offers some garlic disguised as Parmesan. Uh, they throw some holy water over him and they turn out the lights and put a mirror to him when they turn the lights back on. Which Max thinks is Sam doing it because he thinks he's trying to replace his father. Yeah, he kind of passes all the tests, so they don't think it's him. No, no. But Max invites Lucy for dinner around his house for their next date and leaves whilst uh, Grandpa is still watching, still looking suspicious. And Michael goes to see David and demands to know where Star is, but he has to go with them if he wants to see her ever again. And in one of my favourite scenes of the film, because I think this scene really elevates the horror elements of it. Yeah. Um, They go to a bonfire on a beach. Uh, They're watching from the trees nearby. And there's a bunch of... Now, were these meant to be the surf Nazis? I think so. Because in the credits, they list surf Nazis, and I assume (laughs) these characters are meant to be. Um... Yeah, they're, they're dancing around the bonfire to Walk This Way by Aerosmith. That surf Nazi classic. Surf Nazi this way. Way. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, it's not the girls' sugar This soundtrack is not for everyone, though, let's be fair. Do you prefer the girls' lives and sugar babies? No, I don't, no. Um, David and the boys transform into vampires and murder the... Po- well, I had pogs down, but surf Nazis now. Um, before burning the bodies. And it's a really... This is where they had a lot of gore in, uh, some great practical effects here. It's where you actually get to see the vampires killing people rather than just flying away with them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, did, I did. feel like through the whole movie, though, there's I feel like there's a, a version in the edit that was really gory. Like, I feel like, you know, sometimes you watch these films and you think you can just tell that there was way more gore on set than they've yeah. actually allowed to slip through into the final product. And I do get that feeling through all of Lost Boys. Like, some of it is outrageously bloody and gory and just full of great practical effects but then a lot of the time you feel like they're so short and quick and almost like it kind of always skips over them um i wonder if you know there must have been like a more sort of gory gore drenched version you know i think so i mean this is around the same time that the mpaa was really clamping down on friday the 13th wasn't it yeah um so it might have just been Joel Schumacher being careful with what he was submitting to the MPA. I mean, it's still got an R rating. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I know what you mean. The they, they were just cutting out so much violence. Yeah. Really enjoying all the new um, 
you know, Friday 13th Blu-ray releases and stuff where they're actually putting yes. back um, some of the violence and gore that was cut. And I'm just sort of flabbergasted at what was removed because we already love these films and think they're so gory and violent. But the actual, you know, the, the level of gore that actually was done on set is like 10 times more intense. So it's a bit of a shame. Um, I, I think that all these films of this era would have benefited from like absolute maximum gore. Practical effect gore was at its absolute peak at this yeah. time as well. And then you've got the MPAA totally repressing uh, all of these amazing effects. And then that sort of practical horror just sort of dies out, really. So Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's insane is the fact that this is released the same year as uh, Hellraiser as well. And Hellraiser got away with a fair bit. Didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because with Hellraiser as well, it felt a bit more. And this is weird, a bit more sexual. Yeah, you know, and you know, there's two things well, that's the, the idea. NBA, yeah, yeah. hates is violence and sex, particularly together. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a bit shocking. Was yeah. was Hellraiser a big deal? That was it. I mean, this this was obviously going for, you know, box office. Yeah, yeah. Was oh, that anything but a cult film? Definitely a smaller movie. Mm. Uh, obviously not with a great big studio like Warner Brothers. Um, so I guess that kind of plays into it. But yeah, I mean, you're right, actually. Hellraiser, and especially Hellraiser 2, yeah. those are really graphic and sexual. I, I'd be interested to sort of... There's probably something written somewhere about uh, their relationship with censorship and things like that. But those are definitely some really graphic movies of that time that managed to slip through. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope, I hope that there is a version of Lost Boys with Morgul. I hope it is released one day. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's definitely overdue a 4K release. Do you so. think the earlier kills, that, so like the security guard and the mm. skunk boy and his there, girl? There could have been more to that. There could have been Do more you to think that. there could have been more to that? Yeah. What I was getting essentially is is sort of that was very, I mean, comic booky, very yeah. sort of not 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 violent, but as this scene, I thought this scene showed a sort of a, a turn. Yeah, where we actually believe our protagonists are in mortal danger. We actually yeah, yeah. see yeah. it happen, um, and I I thought that was maybe a deliberate thing that he did mm. to sort of build up you know and there's a very a lot of comedy elements to the first yeah, half yeah. and then the second half but mainly the first half of the film is very comedy elements and you're sort of lured into a false sense of security essentially because you're not seeing any of it yeah um and then in this scene you see it yeah and then and i, I thought jarring. that's what potentially he was doing yeah like actually you know they need to be taken seriously now this isn't just um you know they're not playing around Mm. That's what I, that's yeah. how I read it, and, and it works that way because it is jarring to see. And I'm always fan that I'm always fans of watching. You know, you always forget how detailed this scene is. Um, but yeah, and then and then from this point onwards, it is when you see more of the gore as well. Uh, and it's also after this that we get one of the most quotable lines from the film, where David tells Michael um, that he'll never grow old, he'll never die, but he has to feed uh, Sam. Uh, elsewhere wakes up to a stuffed owl which he puts in the closet with the rest of his stuffed animals uh, Michael appears in his room and Sam tells him he can help him when he finds out who the head vampire is Star also appears in the room and tells Michael he's like her and Laddie they haven't killed yet 
uh, Michael was supposed to be Star's first kill, and uh, she asks him to help her and Luddy, to which Michael laughs at her and she just leaves. And then after this, the Frog Brothers come over the next day. Sam and Michael take them to the Vampire Cave uh, in the grandpa's car. And Edgar warns Michael that if he bumps out in any way, he'll stake him. Bit of uh, intimidating Corey Fadman now. <laughs> you bump out in any way. <laughs> uh, Sam and the Frog Brothers investigate the cave whilst Michael takes Laddie and start of the car. And Sam and the Frog Brothers find David and the rest of the vampires sleeping like bats on the ceiling. And Edgar decides to kill Bill from Bill and Ted with a stake to the mm. heart. Uh, and the rest of the vampires are fuming, aren't they? <laughs> Absolutely fuming. <laughs> Especially David, who chases them out and grabs Sam's leg before they drag his arm into some sunlight and burn his arm. Um, but yeah, that's another really good scene as well. Uh, there's a lot of blood splatter in that scene. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly as well. Like, <laughs> I forgot that like Alex Winters, I don't know what his name is. Is it Marco? Marco was his name? Yeah. Um, his blood just like spurts everywhere. Yeah. All in Corey Feldman's face and everything. Yeah. <laughs> ruined his jacket as well. He had the best jacket of all of them too. Completely ruined. Um, so Sam and the Frog Brothers run to the car and Sam drives them away after almost driving them off a cliff. Uh, they all go back to Sam and Michael's house where Grandpa just, he looks at them all going in, like carrying Laddie and uh, Star into the house as well. You know, Edgar Allan Frog are covered in blood. And he's just like, oh yeah, just fill the car up with gas after using it. Just Edgar Allan Frog? Edgar and Allen. Have you only just realised what they're trying to do? I've only just realised. <laughs> now you said it like that. Wow. Wow. Edgar Allan Frog. Okay. Um, Sam tries warning Lucy about the vampires, but she ain't having it. She thinks he's just trying to ruin a date with Max again. And we get a great montage of uh, Sam and the Frog Brothers getting everything ready to hunt those vampires. They set up traps, they gather garlic, they get holy water from a church, and they send Grandpa over to the Widow Johnson's house again. They're into survival, aren't they? They are into survival. This is another 80s thing that, you know, we're missing in modern movies, is that <laughs> sequence where you know we're going into the climax and we have to have all these shots and montage of a good old gearing up, getting the <laughs> strapped on. and <laughs> This is definitely... I think this was very much a nod to Nightmare on Elm Street. This whole setting the traps up in the house and... Yeah. It's before Home Alone. So. Yeah, is, but yeah. <laughs> but then they did it in Last House on the Left as well. It was a very Wes Craven thing. Yeah, but we get in a montage style. In this, did, yeah. yeah. And in Nightmare on Elm Street, of course. You know, Nancy yes. setting up. Yeah. I don't need to tell you. Since Survival, I made the reference. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, what's, what's the book called? Survival for... Is it um, oh, something? Yeah. yeah. Google it. <laughs> I'm sick of doing all the Googling. In that <laughs> um, David and vampires wake up and fly out of the cave over to Sam and Michael's house. Lucy's really jumpy while Sam having dinner with Max and she explains to him why. Um, Nanook's tied to the fence outside, which is a terrible idea in the first place. Don't tie the dog to the fence when the fucking vampires on the way. I know, yeah, who <laughs> did that? Why would they do that? Um, they start approaching the house, the vampires, but Sam and Michael get Nanook inside just in time. 
Uh, and then this is where the shit starts going crazy now. Uh, the Frog Brothers take Star and Laddie upstairs and randomly suggest killing them <laughs> before they're... <laughs> yeah! <laughs> <laughs> they're attacked by... Now, this is when I started writing down vampire names. Paul. Paul. Paul the vampire, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they throw holy water in his face from the bathtub, but Nanook saves the day, jump kicks him into the bath, and his skin mounts <laughs> off his body until he's just a skeleton and blood just starts shooting everywhere around the house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a, a gory scene as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I forgot about that one. Where I really that... appreciate vampire movies where they go to town on, like, the vampire makeup, you know, when yeah. it's teeth, but it's, like, you know, full-blown... They turn into full-blown creatures, you know, full-blown monsters. I, I love that sort of thing. Yeah, again, you know, very much like um, werewolves... I, when you do vampire makeup with practical effects, it, it you know, and, and makeup, it looks great. It looks really good. Um, but that, that's been a fair amount of vampire films with CGI, hasn't it? I mean, look at, again, the Fright Night remake. There's lots of CGI in there. Yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I was getting from, from Lost Boys, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. I feel like yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV series very influenced in the makeup wise yeah, uh, by Lost Boys, yeah. I felt. Oh, yeah, so it's, that sort of, it's that sort of vampire makeup and the eyes and the teeth and the face, absolutely, and Buffy. Yeah, yeah, it looks really, really good. Um, again, the same with Dwayne, the next vampire. Dwayne, the vampire. <laughs> but then it, there's like a um, it moment as well, where the, the blood bursting out of the, At the sink. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sink, yeah. it completely destroys the toilet. Yeah. Um, for, for some reason. It didn't destroy anything else, the toilet just got crumbled. Uh, but bursting out the pipes and everything, it's a great scene. It is. His death. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sam so. and Michael are attacked by Dwayne, and Sam shoots him with an arrow, which sends him into the stereo. And get the iconic quote, death by stereo. And well, after he explodes, might I add, like his head fucking yes, explodes. <laughs> his arms fly over the other side of the room. It's really, really good. It's probably my favourite scene. It's so good. <laughs> um, death by stereo. Yeah, and then we get that random... <laughs> so, what's the stereo? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, then we get that shot of um, the blood spraying everywhere, like you said. And that's when David attacks Michael in, in rather... Um, homoerotic scene. Uh, oh no, that's a little bit later on when he licks his lips, isn't it? Uh, Sam regroups with the Frog Brothers, who inform Sam that they nailed the one who looked like Twisted Sister. Well, <laughs> current <laughs> reference, yeah. <laughs> Sally Field wasn't in uh, <laughs> Twisted Sister, <laughs> okay. Laddie, uh, who's now transformed into a vampire, bursts out of the bed and starts screaming in their faces, to which they compare him to Eddie Munster. And Star tells him to stay away from him because he's just a little boy whilst he's like trying to get past to uh, to eat him. Um, <laughs> they, yeah, this is the homoerotic scene. Now, David attacks Michael again. He turns into a vampire and then he licks his lips at David. And they have this very close, very intimate fight whilst floating, don't they? They do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> uh, with the line, it's too late, my blood is in you. Yeah. I mean, you're gone. <laughs> In your veins. Uh, yeah, very. <laughs> Not subtle at all. Um, but then Michael says, so is mine, and uh, impales David on some antlers. And Cry Little Sister plays again. 
Yeah, so the old Texas Chainsaw Massacre reference comes back where he's, yeah. he's impaled, you know, the, the mm. same way, um, the, what's her name, is impaled. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. No, I'm thinking Silent Night Deadly Night. Silent Night Deadly Night. Well, no, actually, there's a scene in Salem's Lot, the TV, the first TV version by Toby Hooper, where it does look just like Texas Chainsaw with the animal trophies on the red wall. And I'm pretty pretty sure the guy gets impaled in Salem's Lot. I think he did. I think you're right, actually. Yeah. And it's very yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it definitely feels like a reference to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Michael grabs Star and hides in the shadows, and he tells Sam and the Frog Brothers that nothing has changed, even though David's been killed. Lucy and Max show up at the house. Max finds David's corpse and tells Lucy it's all his fault because David and the boys misbehaved uh, because they didn't have a mother. So he explains when you invite a vampire into your house, it renders you powerless. And uh, he also reveals that he's been after Lucy all along, and that's why you needed Sam and Michael to become vampires. Yeah. yeah. Um, he needed Lucy all along to be a mum to the vampires, yeah. because vampires have to have a mum. <laughs> They're like, they have to have, there has to be a, a, a dad and a mum mm. uh, to bring up these kids, which I, I thought was quite funny. Uh, in in the idea is that that's a very conservative idea. Yeah. Um, that there has to be a mum and a dad for the kids because the kids were probably better behaved before they met these vampires. You know, I, I thought that was an interesting, uh, quite a funny sort of reference. Yeah. To conservative values. Yeah, and then having him as the villain as well. Yeah, of course. You know, it really yeah. says it all. Um, he says, "Yeah, it could have been your boys and my boys." To which Edgar says, "Great." A blood-sucking brain <laughs> Max transforms into a vampire, and everyone tries fighting him, but he's too powerful. He grabs Sam and tells Lucy to join him. You, you know what? Lucy has been trying to get that vampire dick throughout his entire film, and now's her <laughs> chance. And she's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll become a vampire. If it means I can finally get a date with you, or I actually get some, I'll become a fucking vampire. But no. <laughs> Max is cut-blocked again, but this time by Grandpa, who arrives... And drives his truck through the house, sending a stake into Max's chest, pushing him into the fireplace where he's set on fire and explodes. <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs> that it's it's again it's 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 a very 80s thing. It just on paper, it's really stupid. The fact that you know he conveniently the, the stake went into the right place, he went to the fight, the fire turned itself on. Um, but on screen, it looks so fucking good. It does, yeah. It looks so ridiculous, but so great. It's pure camp. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> Michael, Laddie, and Star are no longer vampires. Lucy hugs the kids. Edgar asks Alan how much they should charge them for this. Grandpa grabs a drink and tells Lucy how one thing you can never stomach about living in Santa Carla is all the damn vampires, and we get the end credits with People Are Strange. Followed by Roger Daltrey's version of Don't Let the Sun Go Down On Me. It's that one. That one. <laughs> that one. So much. Yeah. Did you see the original? I don't think so. The Elton John, surely the Elton John and George Michael version would have been more fitting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's Lost Boys. What's our, uh, what's our closing thoughts? Go on then. Me? Yeah. 
Oh, well, I, I always see it closing thoughts. Well, I absolutely adore it. I really do. I mean, again, I grew up with this film. I, I watched it at a very young age. I think it was like 13. Had a crush on Corey Haim, of course, at the time, um, from two decades before. And, you know, it was just, there was that relatability in there with all the camp. It just, you know, it's the same reason why I watched Nightmare on Street 4 at that time as well, quite a lot. And now Byron, Mistress of the Dark. Anything camp from the 80s, just throw it away, and I, I was loving it. Um, but, you know, I've watched it countless times, and no matter how many times I watch it, it never gets it never gets boring, it never gets any less entertaining. It's just, yeah, one of my all-time favourite films, and probably my favourite vampire film as well. I Yeah, it, it does, like I said earlier, it does two things that I really appreciate in, in cinema, is that I can sit there and watch it as a camp old time, and just have fun with it and just watch it and that's great and then i can also look at the ideas and the layers and you know looking at it as a product of its time or in a more cultural sense and i, I enjoy doing that with films as well and, and it, you can do both and it, it's interesting either way and like i've said countless times on this podcast you know a film has to be interesting or we couldn't do this. We couldn't yeah. do a podcast episode on a boring film. No. So I really enjoy it. It's a great, great product of its time. And Diane Weiss makes everything better. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of came quite late to The Lost Boys. Because um, I can't remember when I watched it. But it was probably only about six or seven years ago. Um, and I wish it was a film where like, I'd watched it as a teenager. And been able to like properly enjoy it you know, in my childhood, because uh, then I'd probably love it even more. But I do, I mean, I was instantly, I did instantly love it. Um, but, it, and it has continued to grow on me. I think the film definitely has an element of like, it, it grows on you, which is why it's become like such a cult favorite. Um, obviously the soundtrack is fantastic. And even though we just spent, you know, the last hour sort of analyzing it, I like what you said earlier about, it's just like a fun movie, doesn't really give a shit about delivering a very precise message. Um, and I love, I love those types of movies from the 80s. I love that it's literally just here to be a fun popcorn movie um, and not take itself too seriously. Um, there's something we haven't touched on is just like this, this weird central idea about, you know, um, this whole idea of the Lost Boys being born from this Peter Pan reference, you know, like Peter Pan yeah. flying yeah. and being young forever. Um, just sort of like this weird sort of central idea how the Lost Boys potentially ties in with like maybe Peter Pan being a vampire. I mean, I don't think there's anything to really unpack about all that, apart from it's just like a sort of bizarre idea that... Um, you know, and, and I like that. I like that the film is just like, it took this strange idea. It's taken this like Peter Pan mythology, uh, which I do think influences sort of like this sort of like strange Disneyland quality of the film with the, with the roller coasters and stuff, like I was saying, and all the lighting and stuff. Um, but yeah, I just, I enjoy, I enjoy it for what it is. And it's just a very watchable movie. That's that's actually a really good point. I didn't think about that, but that's that's a really really good point. Yeah, absolutely. You also came like to the film, didn't you? Yeah, I showed you. We didn't. I only saw it before for the love of horror. 
Didn't I watch it because of For the Love of Hollywood? No, I changed it about three times before that. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think three times. But, okay, you introduced me to it. Yeah. And we, so that's within the last four years I, I, yeah. I saw it. Yeah. It's the sort of horror film, like, people should be showing their kids, The Lost Boys. Might not necessarily be, like, a children's film, but it just so is at the same time. Yeah, and you've got those sort of films around the 80s, and it's, that's what you mentioned, actually, because we actually, the other week, when we did the original versus remake for uh, Poltergeist, I actually compared Poltergeist to The Lost Boys in that sense. And that is, it is a film you can show kids. It is a gateway to horror and yes. you know more horror films. And there's a few of those around the 80s. Mm. Um, and, and I think, I mean, if you look at modern day, I think the closest thing that's come to that sort of film uh, would probably be something like Trick or Treat, or even you know the the latest uh, It Chapter One and Two. I've yeah. got that sort of eighties, um, not too distant from a Spielberg feeling to them. You know that it would be gateways into horror. Yeah, it's a horror film that's not necessarily for horror fans. Mm. I I would say, and they're the, the kind of films that stand the test of time. You know, at, at the heart of it, it's a bit of a coming of age story mm. as well. Um, it featured actors that went on to become, you know, Brat Pack teen idols as well. So it is definitely a gateway film, yeah, I absolutely. think, into horror. So yes, that is The Lost Boys. And uh, if you're a fan of The Lost Boys, we're on social media, the Horror Cool Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horror Cool Trash on Twitter. I'm dead at Gazmo2 on Letterboxd, GazCruzmo2 on Twitter and Gazmo205 on Instagram. I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram, Letterboxd and Twitter. Yeah, uh, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe if you listen on iTunes, like a film, nothing else. Next week, well, Friday, Friday we're back with Suspiria doing original versus remake. And our final Prime Move episode next week is Hellraiser 1 and 2 where we'll be joined by scare actor Jack Taylor. Charlie, what is next for you? Well, currently I'm in post-production on three movies. Um, so unfortunately, just a load of editing, basically. Um, I've been lucky enough that um, uh, filmmaking is exempt from the lockdowns that we had. So when we went into our third lockdown back in January, um, I was able to just carry on life as usual <laughs> I've been going all around the country I've been in Cornwall and Wales and York uh, filming three movies one's a medieval werewolf movie which is essentially sort of like knights versus werewolves and it's a I suppose it's a horror movie but it's more of a fantasy angle um, you know I got to sort of create sort of like a fantasy world map and we're filming at big castles and stuff like that and swords and werewolves and stuff um, the other film is definitely a horror. Um, it's uh, another medieval horror. Um, it's set in the Tower of London. Um, and it's sort of about a, uh, a guy who can see the dead, um, ends up being a prisoner in the Tower of London and sees the ghosts of uh, the murdered two princes, which is a true life story of the Tower of London. Um, and sort of with the help of a priest, um, tries to sort of solve the murder and uh, it's just full of sort of kind of like the shining inspired um, visions of like the dead and, and all this sort of thing. Um, so there's those two films that I've been shooting. And then the last one I've been shooting is called Gods of the Deep. And it's a aquatic horror with a sci-fi edge. 
Um, and it's about a group of scientists who find an opening on the floor of the ocean and take a deep sea submersible down to the bottom of the sea. Obviously, needless to say, it's like my most most ambitious film with like visual effects and everything. Um, and at the bottom of the sea, they find um, a, a sort of like lost world where uh, giant Cthulhu creatures sort of seem to have died out. They take a tissue flesh sample from Cthulhu and uh, awaken it and um, madness and chaos and lots of uh, water and fire and stuff. Uh, nice. nice. <laughs> yeah. And tentacles, of course. All three of sound really fucking good. I mean, you know, as I've already said about werewolf films, I'm already sold on that. And the Tower of London one, the backstory sounds really interesting on that, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can never go wrong with sea creature horror. Yes. <laughs> as, as we've learned this year, watch the fair for you. <laughs> yeah, we have actually. Yeah. That must have been a real pain um, to sort of film and, and visual effects, she said. Didn't yeah, you? well, what I did was I. Um, I basically I have a huge um, sort of like it's really just like a big metal barn in Cornwall where I build my sets um, and so we built the interior of the um, deep sea submersible I mean I'm kind of lucky because it's it's not a submarine so it didn't need to look like a sort of military submarine it's a totally sci-fi futuristic submersible so I can kind of take a bit of creative license and make it look sort of however I want it to look um, but I mean yeah there's a lot of practical difficulties in the middle of the set there's a, a swimming well a very small swimming pool with um, uh, sort of like doors on it it's like a sort of pressure lock that goes out into the ocean and uh, uh, like a one-man emergency vehicle that can be lowered into it. So just the whole thing of building a set that has, you know, water, a pool of water in the centre of it. Um, and then, of course, in the film, there's a bunch of flooding and uh, all that sort of stuff. So that we, we had a lot of water being sort of, you know, gushing through the ceiling and characters drowning and stuff like that. So it's been really fun. Oh, great. Sounds wonderful. And they should be out sometime this year. Werewolf, or... Werewolf film will be out uh, at the end of this year. Uh, and then the other two will be out early next year. Um, and then I've also got coming to DVD in this country. Uh, my movie Death Ranch comes out later this year, uh, which I shot over in Tennessee. Um, and is a sort of like black exploitation grindhouse sort of thing. Probably my most gory movie. Um, and then I also have um, my movie uh, Winter Skin is coming to DVD probably early next year, uh, which is like a sort of in the cabin, uh, snowy cabin, sort of misery-esque, uh, sort of kind of inspired by Italian westerns at the same time, uh, sort of like claustrophobic thriller. Um, and then uh, The Barge People uh, came out on DVD in the US last year uh, and is... I'm told coming to the UK finally this year. So hopefully they follow through and, and that does eventually come out here. So, yeah. I'm so happy to hear that because we wanted to watch the barge people at Fright Fest. But if I remember, I think the screen is sold out. It did sell out. Um, yeah, we can get tickets. Yeah, because, I mean, that looks amazing. It, it looks so good. And Death Ranch as well. Death really Ranch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Winter Skin sounds amazing as well. 
I feel rather lazy though, actually. <laughs> I used to do this podcast yeah, every week. Yeah, we used to do the podcast. Like, That's a lot of effort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, it, it is amazing what you do, and you thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank absolutely. You very much. Honored to have you on. Where can we follow you for updates and such on releases? Um, on Twitter, you can find me at Dark Temple Films. Um, Instagram, I think I'm probably I could be at Dark Temple Films there as well, I'm not sure, or I've just searched my name, Charlie Steeds um, and I always just tell people like, if you want to watch my films just the best way is to just type Charlie Steeds into Amazon, you know and then you'll see what is and what isn't available, so yeah Yeah, brilliant. absolutely brilliant. So yeah, thank you again thank you for, very joining much for joining us, us. And we will see all our listen. Well, we'll see what the fuck do I say that every week for? We ain't see that. We'll see. I'll say it anyway because I've been saying it for 123 episodes. I ain't going to change it now. We'll see you on Friday. Bye.